Welcome back to Sci-Fi and Fantasy Read-Along. I am ATN. And I am Yule. And I'm DM Phil. Hey guys, welcome back. This is the beginning of the end, re- realistically speaking. Uh, this, this one's a long one. It's broken up into a lot of different sections. And I'm not going to waste a lot of time with this one. We're just going to go straight to it. Is that all right with y'all? That's fine. That's fine. Yes, let's do it. I'm, I'm a little confused. Did you say that's fine twice, Philip? That's fine. That's fine. Yeah, okay, okay. <clears throat> was it was it so perfect that it sounded like it was an echo? A little bit, yeah, yeah. All right, so in our last episode, since that's what we're here for, um, Lorne finally caught up to Whiskey Jack, Surratt met her match, and raced the Jagged Tyrant emerged from long imprisonment. Let's take a peek at this preamble. Can you guys give me anything from the preamble that is worth taking into the chapter? Oh, well, in a sense, it's talking about Animator Rake, I think, in a way. No, it's not even talking about him. It's talking about the dragon, so never mind. It's titled Anomandaris. Yeah, which is... So I think that might be talking about him. You know, it's part of that poem that we, I guess, encountered way, way, way back in, like, the first... Chapter 2. Chapter 2. So, yeah. but it's not talking about him directly. It's just talking about the dragons and their introduction into our knowledge and experiences. Yule? Yeah, we just la- last left them last chapter as they were attacking Raced, the Jagged Tyrant. Yeah, we did. Now it's this chapter, starting with this preamble. But yeah, the, but, but dragons aren't a part of this chapter at all. So, it is, like, for one of the first times, it seems really kind of out of place. Not at all. Well, not at all as far as what's going... It's happening as this chapter is continuing. And that's kind of what this is. I would like to point out to you guys that there are five black dragons. And we've only seen four. Oh, I see. Yeah. And the last sentence of that preamble is the dragons had come among us. So just some flavor text. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I think if if there's any illusion whatsoever, it's an illusion to... Animander Rake being a half-dragon or something, and now his time to enter the game is here, even though he's been in the game for a long time. I don't know. Lauren is in the depths of a massive garden, having just planted the thinnest. I think it's fair to say that this is Lady Simtal's garden. Huh. Yeah, I guess so. Crocus in the last chapter said that it was a massive thing, like the size of a forest in itself. And um, here's Lorne wiping her hands after having planted the seed in the garden. She thinks to herself that she has well, two tasks okay, remaining. Okay, so going back to the acorn that she had planted, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when I read that, I was like, oh my god, what the hell is she doing? And she's smiling, and she's all flippant about it. And she's like, find an acorn, plant it. And I, I this is a recipe for extreme disaster, and... She's just amused by it. Well, it's very smart. She's outsmarting the bridge burners. Well, I don't know what her motivations are. I mean, honestly. Yeah, you, we, yeah we do. We do. She's trying to lure Raced specifically into a place where he's going to do a lot of damage, right? Well, that was- So she's chosen the fate as a place of gathering. There's actually a convergence going on at that fate, and she knows it. So she's bringing Raced straight to the fate, right? I suppose. Raced. Race to the fate. And the bridge burners are going to be there, which she found out last chapter. So she's like, oh, 18 birds and one stone. (laughs) 18 birds, one acorn? She has this, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily a moment of regret, 
but she does say that she ha- she is leading this thing to ruin a bunch of people's days is basically it and she has oh, yeah she has been in situations where she has been where people's days have been ruined <laughs> she's heard screams she's heard death she's heard the destruction of war that she's been a part of and I don't again I don't know if it's necessarily regret but she's it's happy familiar. to be done with it after the afterwards it seems like she is wiping her hands essentially mm-hmm. but um Okay, so she's jumped back over the wall and is trying to reemerge with this, the citizenry of Darugistan. And she has kind of a breakdown because she sees in their eyes, like, the festivities are going on. She thinks that they kind of look like there's madness, latent madness in them. And it's reminding her of all of the cities that she has seen sacked as she's been the adjunct. And I don't know, it's like a fine line between um, sanity and insanity. And she's cracking. Like, Lorne is cracking. Well, just a second ago, she was, like, amused. And now she's, like, she had to, she's almost fainted and she had to rest against the wall and muse on these, what's going to happen. And there's a paradox there that seems a little out of place to me. What doesn't seem out of place is her remorse, regret, and, I guess, uncomfortability with what she's doing. That makes sense, but just a second ago, she was amused. Yeah, I don't know what to say. Like, I found it a bit odd as well. Right. We've seen her in the past couple of chapters, like, going back and forth. She's, like, reticulating like a fan, you know, where she's, like, confident in what she's doing. And then she's like, I don't know. This isn't good. She's going back and forth. And now we're we're on the back again, right? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like she isn't going to be sticking around much longer after this. Okay, so what is she sticking around for? She has two tasks. She has to find Sari and kill her, I guess. And that's not looking possible, because she, she can't find Sari anywhere. And and she's been led to believe that Sari might actually be dead. Yeah. So she's having a problem locating her, and again, that's one of the things. She has one other thing she's supposed to do. Uh, she's supposed to be looking for the coin bearer. And again, I didn't really know that that was on her radar. Like, it just didn't occur to me that she even knew about the coin bearer until pretty recently. And now she wants to kill the coin bearer, which I find a little bit surprising, but that's all right. Well, and she also mentioned she wanted to take the coin and make Opon pay. Which is exactly what the rope wanted to do, <laughs> if you will remember. But, I, yeah, I, I didn't even know she knew that Opon was in play, or I, I can't see how Opon has really gotten in her way. No, but she did know that Opon was meddling with her, with her mind a little bit, right? Yeah, she did. And, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't know why Well, I have the... to go through this book again? Yeah, one more time, Mule. <laughs> we'll make a podcast. Make this... you, what do you think? I'll make this note. <laughs> All right. So as the Lorne is as Lo- as the Lorne as the adjunct. adjunct Lorne is having her breakdown almost in public. There's thunder in the east. No rain, just thunder. And that that ends her section. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of thunder going on during this <laughs> chapter. It's kind of amazing, really. Like seeing who knows what, you know. Mm-hmm. It's it's really it's a neat chapter oh, for that. And, and not just purpose. yeah, but uh, you know the, the 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 thunder that's kind of approaching. I, that was a very artful way that um, Stephen Erickson is like. There's this, it's building, you know. So Krupp has just departed the Phoenix End and is on his way to the Fate. 
for the past hour, he has been engaging his talent, capital T. This is a, it's a pretty straightforward information dump. We learn several things in this section because Krupp is thinking to himself. So let's just go through them one at a time. Like, what do we learn from Krupp right now? Well, he's worried about Crocus, first off. He's, uh, he's worried that um, Crocus isn't going to last the night. Well, as is... Well, it sounds like He seems night. to think that it's fairly typical that when a god chooses a tool, they tend to discard it and kill the tool um, so that no one can get to them. Right. And he thinks that's what's going to happen to Krupp, or Crocus. However, he also knows that he's not alone in protecting Crocus. Someone else is at someone else. Some other agency is at work. Now, when he's saying that, he's talking about the prince that's helping save Crocus's life nu- numerous times. Is that what he's saying? Well, no. Just to be clear, he 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 specifically said that he had a suspicion that somebody was helping him. It wasn't a guarantee. Uh, he just knows that there's other things going on that were beyond him. And he would have to trust in the agency of that person, yeah, or organization or whatever. So- and yes. It's probably what he's sensing is probably the group of people that came down from Black Dog Forest at the bidding of Caladan Brood. So the eel, <laughs> Krupp, the guy who's like, he's got his fingers in all the pies, is got one other pie that's out there and he doesn't have his fingers in it at all. So <sighs> another thing that Krupp's got going on that he's thinking about is the fact that Circle Breaker, his spy on the inside, it's time for that guy to retire. I think so, too. Yeah, so does he. Well, actually, Circle Breaker thinks he's going to retire the only way you can really retire from a game like yeah, this. Yeah, feet first. <laughs> and this, we're talking about the eel. We have been talking about the eel. That was an agent of the eel that he's talking about that needs to retire, and he's also concerned that his cover is blown. And the spell that he cast on Marilio, that's going to wear off pretty soon. So after tonight, things are just going to have to play out the way that they're going to play out. And that includes his meeting with Baruch. Right, who Baruch uh, seems to know who he's dealing with now. He seems suspicious that he knows, yes. Right. So, um, so I think Krupp also knows that he's suspicious. I mean, right? he's had to use use his talent to, you know, to befuddle people, if you will. And yeah. I guess like that magic can only last so long, especially when think about it this way. Uh, so he so Krupp used his power on Marilio, his buddy. Yeah. And Marilio is like, oh, I don't know what what's going on anymore. You know, after he accused him of being the ill. And I, I I would assume that you can only influence people that way so much when they finally have stumbled across the answer. You can only obfuscate it for so long. Sure, it's like suggestion or charm person even. You right. know, these things will wear off in time. And then you'd be like, oh, wait a second here. We had explored that possibility before, though, but maybe he's done it to Marilio and others countless times. Maybe even Baruch, right? Oof. He only did this to Marilio this morning before the sun came up. When he dropped the mask. Right, so maybe it only lasts 24 hours or less. That yeah. may be. Or if, he, if, if this is something he's done to a person numerous times, uh, they're building up a little bit of a defense to it after a while. It could be any of those things. I don't feel like Krupp's done this over and over to Marilio. Yeah, I think it's, this is the first time, and it's, for whatever reason, the sum of every little hint over time has finally started triggering people's suspicions. Krupp has, we know that Krupp has the ability to divine in his mind. That's what he's been doing for the past hour. He was kind of like trying to find all of the paths to success, and apparently there are not very many. Most of the paths lead to disaster. 
but he settled on whatever he settled on because he can't see beyond the fate tonight. So I suspect that he's come to the crossroads from his dream, essentially. That place where the decision, you know, it's like it's it's go time. I think that's kind of what it is. But, you know, that's just my interpretation. Well, yeah, I had the, I had kind of had the impression based on based on his words that he was capable of exploring essentially multiple avenues of outcomes in his mind. Does that make yeah. any sense? A lot like yeah. like I, I, like Doctor Strange when he was like there was 1,247,000 whatever possible outcomes. Only one right. succeeds. And I kind of had the feeling his brain has been working like that in a sense. I agree. So he's on his way to the fate, just like everybody else in this chapter, and he's admiring his mask, and he thinks that Baruch will appreciate it, and maybe alone Baruch will appreciate his the irony of his mask. And then, of course, we don't find out what it is until later. As night falls on Darujistan, Crocus and Absalar depart Kroll's temple. So there's not a lot to this section, and that's that's true of a lot of the sections in this chapter, and we're going to just kind of force our way through them as quick as we can because um, there's nothing really here except there, there's one thing in particular, and I, I'd like to suggest that it's, it's very important, it's very suggestive, and it's pretty much the very end of this section. Mm-hmm. Well, I did, did want to mention that Crocus and Absalar are having this conversation here, and she has been just she seems so aloof and almost dispassionate about everything and calm, and that's unnerving to Crocus in a way that he finds either annoying or frightening. I don't know, but her, her behavior is odd. Is the answer she told him in last chapter that something was helping her? What do you mean? Like the was that the, stone? the black stone yeah. in her mind? Yeah. I mean that was that was kind of how their section ended last chapter, and yeah, she is she takes it all real smooth, right? And he's he's frustrated because he would have been frustrated if the roles had been reversed, and him thinking about the roles being reversed, I think, is his most mature act to date. Nevertheless, he's still kind of like just leading her around, thinking that he's the one steering the ship. But if you look at the very end of this section. She's steering the ship. And remember, her name is Absalar. Right. Okay? So his eyes are wide open. He can see nothing. So she guides him. Because we already know that she can see in the dark. Right. And uh, there's uh, earlier in this part, she asked Crocus, Absalar asked Crocus, what is she going to do if Chalice were to betray him again? Smart girl. Yeah. And, And he's all, well, she won't. I think that's the kind of stuff that's irritating Crocus, is that she's smarter than him. Probably. Um, but when he says, trust me, the her her reaction is, I, I do. do. Yeah. Uh-huh. Immediately. Immediately. She doesn't hesitate at all. And, and yeah. she's been that way ever since she's uh, changed, has hooked up with Crocus, he's brought her into town. I mean, for a person who's leading him at the end of this part, she is following and just kind of going along with what's going on. Almost like, you know, she's being driven to do this also, maybe. It's the calmness that's a little unnerving, so... Does it unnerve you? I think there's something going on. I mean, no, I I mean, I read it. It's unnerving. But, you know, it just, it occurred to me that you're saying when, at the end, at the very end of this section, when Absalar took his hand and was leading him through the darkness, I wonder if that's, 
I wonder if that's uh, a metaphor. I, yeah, I think so. I definitely think so. Well, our initial reaction to it is because uh, Crocus thinks, uh, she says, don't let go of my hand. And he's all, well, it'll be hard. He's thinking to himself, Crocus thinks, well, it would be hard for me to let go even if I wanted to. And I, we're kind of getting that um, that horny teenage kid thing going on again with him a little bit. I don't think so. I took that to mean she, I took that to mean she had an iron grip. <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, well, she. Uh, I, I think he uh, he's becoming even more so enamored with her, also. And yet, the plan goes forward. Yeah, he's going to talk to Chalice. <laughs> yeah. Even though he's starting to uh, really dig Absalar, he still wants to, for some reason... I mean, he doesn't even have anything with this lady. Well, I got. I assume it's pride. No, it's got to be pride. Maybe pride, but I got to think that's uh, Opan driving him towards the Nexus. That's kind of what I'm thinking. So the bridge burners are being directed by the captain of Lady Simtal's house guard, and he is disappointed that they are not all bargast. <laughs> yeah, he is. Uh, I, I, I wanted all bargast because you know, as we said last chapter. They are in a they're they are in a I can't be man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And more so than even being guards, they're just there for the people at the fate so that they can ooh and awe at the bar guest. The opening is a little entertaining. I don't know. It's just like Trotz is just like, Well, I, I didn't tell you all of us were. You assumed. <laughs> well, he he doesn't say it, but he, he keeps his mouth shut. In fact, the only thing he does is he growls when the captain uh, of the house, the house guards, <laughs> punches his finger in his chest and he growls at him, and the captain backs off. Uh, I was entertained. Yeah, uh, Whiskey Jack's defense is that if we all were bargas, then you would have to really pay some money. They wouldn't be able to afford yeah, exactly. it, is what he said. <laughs> um, so they're given their orders by this guy. All right, so what are their orders? The, the captain tells Whiskey Jack and Trots and all the other guys that their job is to stand with their backs to the forest behind them, the trees that's overgrown. They are even told to, uh, if anybody comes and wants to go through, they're to be polite to them, go get the captain if it's a problem. They are to be as nice as possible to every single person, and he doesn't want to hear anything about these guys getting out of hand. Uh, but their goal is to keep people out of the garden. Right. Containment. They're a cordon between the terrace and the garden, which is overgrown. Mm-hmm. All right, so he departs. The captain of the guard departs to go attend to other matters, and Whiskey Jack has been noticing during that conversation that all every time there's a boom of thunder... Quick Ben is wincing, and he's like, what is going on with you? Yeah, Quick Ben, he says that, I don't know if you can tell, but I know who every magic-wielding person is at this party. Yeah. Because just like Quick Ben, they are in a lot, a lot of pain. They're, they're, Why? It, it pain, maybe uh, maybe it's more like unease, uh, like a stomach pain or something like that. It just, it, they are not well. And Why? It's uh, what was that? Why? Um, because of the jagged tyrant is uh, is is using his magic, and it's like what it's it's it. I don't know how do they, they can feel it. They can they feel, can feel it. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Do you remember? Like, they're all sensitive to it, right? Mm-hmm. Remember Baruch's headaches and all that kind oh, of stuff? Right, like, yeah. it's the same thing, but the sorceries being unleashed are elder and massively powerful. And it's not just the tyrant, it's also the dragons. Right. And I mean, it's not like they're. It's not like those guys out there are the dragons and the tyrant are attacking the magicians, the spell users here at this party. They just can feel it, like you said. And it's getting closer. The thunder is getting closer, which means that he's fighting and he's winning. Right. Now, there is a way for all of these spell users to actually alleviate this pain. And all they would have to do is access and tap into their warrants. But if they would do that, then Raced would know exactly where everybody is. And even from this far away, he would be able to take control of a bunch of them. And that would be really and bad. That would be the end. I mean, it would just be the end. <laughs> so, they must all know. So all these wizards basically are are doubled over in pain. And they're just... I, I assume they, they just look like they're, they're really constipated or something like that. I know. <laughs> they're also helpless right now. Mm-hmm. But like every one of them is helpless. Well, when like you can't, they can't, yeah. can't use magic at all. Guys, this is terrifying. That you know something's coming and you can't use your magic, or it will just take you. And they're all pretending like everything's fine. Oh, this, I, yeah. They're, they, they go to the party anyway. Why? You know what I mean? Why? I wouldn't have gone. I would have been like, not worth it. I'm staying home or leaving the city or whatever. Seriously, I don't, you you would have to leave the city. I think. <laughs> Well, I think it's probably true of the deal that they made with Rake that they would stay to help, right? Because you remember in a couple chapters ago, he said that when I am diminished or defeated, it will be up for the Torud Cabal to take and finish the job. That's right. true. That's true. So I think they're ob- obligated to stay behind. That's true. Well, it's, it's their city. <laughs> remember, Pale City, you know, their wizards left, mm-hmm. and their city fell, and Anamanda Rake killed them. Well, well, that's true. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Because, I forgot about that. Yeah. They're like, they're like, okay, we'll stay, we'll stay. <laughs> but ser- they know. I mean, they arranged for the last two heads to be delivered to Anamander Ray. I know, but the, so got, they're they're aware. There's got to be some other wizards there though that are feeling it, and they're all ignoring it and going to the party. That is just nuts. I mean, what's wrong with these people? And it goes all the way back to when crocus was going through the streets and he was i guess he was ruminating on the fact that everybody is just going to have this big party even though the malazan empire is on the way i remember that yeah that was a long time ago buddy yeah and this is like this yeah it was long but this is like the same thing like the world is about to end and they're gonna have a party right yeah of course we um i remember as a child it was very popular in southern california to have earthquake parties (laughs) <laughs> because you know the big one's coming you know that type of stuff and yeah sure there would be people they have you know big overlooks in their big yards you know and earthquake parties Perrin and Kalam leave Cole asleep at the Phoenix Inn they're discussing their plans for Lorne namely what that they plan to kill her if they see her and I don't think it's a guarantee. I think it's a big if statement. Like, if they come across her, they're planning to kill her. But they pass through, again, we're in another section that's extremely, extremely short. They're passing through the main section, the main floor of the inn, and Kalam gets frustrated. He sees Skurve there wiping out glasses. He grabs the man by the collar and pulls him over the bar, 
and delivers a message to him that he wants relayed to the Assassin Guild's master. Yeah, I guess he's gotten to the point where it, it hasn't played out the way he meant to have it play out. And he's just Not like fed up. And he's like, you yep. know what? Let them know about this. <laughs> or I'm coming back here with killing in mind. That's right. <laughs> That's what yeah. he said. <laughs> he did. Uh-huh. So he, uh, you know, he releases Scurve and throws him some silver and then they head outside. And outside, they see a bunch of drunk revelers who are essentially interfering with the gray faces who are going about lighting the lanterns throughout the city. And it's not serious intervention. It's just they'll, like, pick them up and hug them and spin them around and put them back down. You know, that kind of interference. It sounds like drunken revelry. Revelry. And they're just going up and hugging strangers that are, oh, you're turning on the lights. I love you. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a strange thing. However, it gives Kalam pause, and he doesn't understand or know why, but he feels a little bit of anxiety about the gray faces. Hey, I'm calling it. Do you remember back infinite chapters ago when I was like, there's something about those gray faces that just bothers me. It's like nobody like pays any attention to them. They're everywhere. They're faceless. They're anonymous. And I think I mentioned at the time, you because you asked, you're like, well, what's what's the problem? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe they're like the eels' uh, minions or something. But yeah, I had this nagging feeling that those guys were up to something, and it wasn't just lighting light bulbs. It was serious. And Kalam has that feeling, too. And I don't know what it is, but... Well, he doesn't either. When we get to the end, let's remember this moment. How's that? Okay. Baruch and Rake are riding in a black carriage on their way to the Fate. The sorcery in the East is bothering Baruch, and he's got like his head down, his eyes are shaded, and he's like just kind of observing Anamander Rake. And he notes that Anamander Rake seems completely calm. He's not. He doesn't seem worried at all. Uh, is that because he's steeled against what's going to be happening? Dude, I don't know. I can't read this guy's mind. I I just assume that he is not worried. You know, he's confident. And maybe he doesn't fear death either, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of the humans in this book probably do fear death. Well, I imagine he's not—he's probably not suffering. Maybe because he has an elder Warren or something. Because I was thinking about the dragons that were stopping or trying to stop race. I mean, they're still fighting on. And they seem to be immune to this ability to be taken over or... Uh, the ability, they can function in the presence of race, and these other human wizards seem to be having a hard time. So maybe he just doesn't su- isn't suffering like everybody else is. Is it the otherworldly nature, maybe, of Rake? I think it's the hierarchy, guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like Rake's magic is sufficiently powerful and old to not be hammered on by race. That's, I mean, that's that's how I'm taking it. The dragons are the same way. I mean, who knows? Ultimately. I don't think Erickson's ever really spelled it out, but... All right, so let's just point out the masks right now. Uh, Well, only one, I guess. We only get one. Yeah. As Baruch is studying Rake, he's looking at his mask, and he says it's ghastly. It's the black dragon mask, and he does not understand its significance. He said it looks sly. On the steps of the Simtal estate, Turban Orr lingers to see who it is that accompanies Baruch. On his arm is the lady herself. So he is wearing a hawk mask and she a panther. 
So out comes Baruch and Anamanda Rake. Boom. Lady Simtal Gaff, she says, Trake Unleashed. And I had to look it up, right? Because the first time Trake has ever been mentioned in this book, and that's the Tiger of Summer or something? It's the Tiger of Summer and Battle. That's right. And so we've now encountered all four seasonal deities. There is Trake. There is the Wolf of Winter. There is Geteron, which is the goddess of spring. And then there is uh, Drek, which is the worm of autumn. Nice. I don't know. I was I, I was like, there's got to be one from summer, and there finally is. I was So it's like completing the circle. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I wonder if it has anything to do with the circle being mended. I doubt it, but who knows. All right, so Turban Orr, he wants to know who this man is that's seven foot tall, has silver hair and a dragon mask. And so does Lady Simtal. So they're like, ooh, who's this your friend, Baruch? And he's like, this is Lord Anamander Rake, because Rake was insistent to use his real name. Yeah, Baruch, when this introduction is being made, he's looking at Turban Orr's face. And he, <laughs> yeah. he's like, is this guy going to know who Anamander Rake is? And he looks at them. He's like, this guy's had poems written about him. Scholars have written endlessly about him, but of course this councilman doesn't know who he is at all. I guess right. the council doesn't know who he is. Well, he's not a dullard either, but there's got to be people here that know. And this is this is straightforward Animator Rake style, which is just just in your face, very honest, very straightforward, no deceptions, and it's very much him to the T. I agree. It is definitely very much him. So the thing that Yule just brought up, though, about the councilman not recognizing the name, because he's all like, you must be landed, sir. And he's like, yeah, kind of, technically, sort of. But Baruch is very relieved. Can you explain to me, please, why Baruch is relieved at that, at him, at Turban Orr, not knowing who Anamanda Rake is? No, I can't, but all I can think of is this guy is a ding-dong because he does, I mean, there's a giant floating city, and then nobody knows anything about it? I don't know. That's weird. Sorry, go ahead. You will? Explain it to me. All right, so I think what's going on is that if Turban or knew who Anamander Rake was, he would know that he was the Lord of Moon Spawn, and then he would put two and two together, and he would be able to confirm that Baruch is the head of the Torud Cabal. Well, I thought he I thought he already knew that. He's suspicious, and he thinks that he knows, but he like this would be a dead giveaway. The the Lord of Moon Spawn with this guy, he'd be like, Oh, this is one of Darujistan's secret rulers. Well, for sure. He would know. For sure. It would be a dead giveaway. Well, well, so but he didn't know. At this party, at this point in time, would that matter? I don't know, okay. Yule. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I mean, um, if you're thinking op- about tomorrow, you know, because a Krupp isn't thinking about tomorrow. He's like... Well, he can't see tomorrow. Exactly. Whereas a normal human being, uh, <laughs> even a wizard, uh, someone in, in a, the... How do you say it? Turbold Torud Cabal. Even somebody in the Torud Cabal has probably some hope for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you get found out now, that might not be the greatest thing going forward. All right. But before we move on, let's uh, just briefly mention again that Anamander Rake wears the mask of a black dragon and Baruch is wearing this weird half shield. Not very really covering his features at all. Right. 
because of duplicity that it was like an obvious statement denying duplicity is the way that it was put by Erickson. Marilio and Ralik are standing near the terrace doors and they're watching guests arrive. Marilio is appreciating the um, appropriateness of Krupp's mask. So he got it like Krupp thought Baruch was going to be the only one that would appreciate his mask. But Marilio seeing the mask is like, oh, yeah, that's so appropriate for Krupp. Marilio is wearing a feather decked peacock mask and Ralik is wearing the Catlin tiger in the likeness of Trake. Which is perfect because Trake is the hunter. And he's because he's awesome. And he's hunting, right? Right now, Ralik is hunting. Yeah. They see Turban Orr and Lady Simtal together and Baruch and Rake. And then they notice that Krupp is straight on his way to go and talk to Baruch and Rake. <laughs> he's got like. And they're he's like, uh oh. I mean, he's got like no style, no tact, no class here. It's just really. It's, it's comedic. Well, originally they didn't want Krupp anywhere near this these, this fate. That's at right. All. Nobody or invited these people, him. especially right. Nobody invited this guy. So they didn't want him to interfere for sure. And something in this section was also stated that if Baruch recognized them, and Marilio said, "Don't worry, he won't bother us either." So I think it's gotten to the point where it's too late. Like Krupp can't really interfere too well. And the plan is going forward. So I think they're fairly safe. Now it starts picking up. Lady Simtal and Turban Orr excuse themselves, leaving Baruch and Rake in the center of the vast entryway. And lo, here comes Krupp. <laughs> Rake spots him before he arrives. And Baruch correctly identifies him as the eel. And Anamander Aesol. No. Oh, that guy? But you got to describe him. He's he's got he's got his mask and he's like shoving all these pastries and icing like Dude, through, his, oh through my his God, mask. He's such a pig. It's through his mask. He, the pastries are in his mouth all in one fell swoop. <laughs> he's like Yeah, Dude. just one all after another basically. And, and he's like spitting crumbs and there's icing on his mask. Oh <laughs> yeah, he even gets it on Rake, I think, cuz he's talking to them. You know? Yeah, when he when he bows to leave. So think about it. This is a this is a party with the most upper class, uh, sophisticated elites, and here's this guy in his old clothes and dingy, and I mean, he is that guy. He had his waistcoat cleaned. <laughs> he just couldn't button it. Yeah, no. I don't know. I just should have had to take it out a little bit, maybe. This is no, no. no. This is that guy at the party. That's that's all I got to say. He only came for the food, really, right? <laughs> yeah, right. No, he came for other things. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. <laughs> so Krupp speaks with Rake mainly about flying and about being high up and seeing very clearly and being a dragon. Yes, this is and witty repartee. Very awesomely done. Go ahead. Well, Baruch says to Krupp, it's just a mass. Right. And Krupp says that he can see in the muddy water that this is his home. And then he says, I need to go and investigate these kitchens. And that's when he bows and, like, gestures and, like, sugary stuff goes all over Anamanda Rake. <laughs> and, then, and then Krupp takes off. <laughs> He's spitting on a god. I just, oh, my god. I don't know. Like, this the, the, the I wouldn't say banter, but the incredibly clever verbal sparring here is just brilliant. I got, it was very... It was, tit sparring? it was titillating. Not sparring. 
Well, no, they were going back uh, and forth. Kind of, sort of. What do you think? What do you think was actually said here? Well, he was saying, "Hey, you're the you're the you're the Lord of Moon Spawn, and you look down on all the people." And that's basically what he's saying. You know, he's I saying you're correct. so tall, you look down on us. But since he's alluding to all those other things, I think that's what he's saying. They're being literal, but they're also being metaphorical and. The way they say it, it's there's a lot of puns, and I know you hate puns, but tons tickle the intellect, which is, I mean, I really like them. And I, every single thing they say has a double meaning, basically calling each other out. I think so. I mean, it seemed to me that Krupp was being pretty obvious. Um, you know, his suggestions could be interpreted politically, you know, to have been polite and misunderstood. But it sounds to me like he's telling Rake that he knows who he is, and he's an admirer, essentially. And Baruch, of course, is like, it's just a mask crop. And he's like, mm-hmm, of course it is. sure it is, sir. Sure it is. Well, you know, you, we've got, I mean, sorry, Krupp went on and on about how intelligent Baruch is. But I, to me, he's just. It, he is intelligent. He has a very different intelligence, though. Like, Krupp sees the minutia. And this guy sees big picture. He doesn't see the stuff right in front of him. We've seen that a lot in this book where he's. He didn't see the bridge burners. They're right in front of him. He doesn't see them. You know, like, he didn't know who the coin bearer was. He was right in front of him. He knew the name. He knows Mamet. Like, all of these things. Baruch is a big picture guy. Krupp is a small details guy. Yeah. They're both very, very intelligent. Yes. Oh, okay, fine. I agree. But uh, I think in last chapter, uh, when they were talking about... I'm sorry, when Baruch was talking about, that was my first mistake of the night... Yeah, and we never got a second. I think this is a second right there. He's just not picking up on it. Erickson likes to point those things out, and I think it's kind of like a hook, right? To like, ooh. Oh, that might be true. Ooh. Well, Krupp can see through muddy waters. That's pretty much where he leaves it. Mm-hmm. And he heads off to inspect the kitchens. Well, and Rick said, ah, the eel indeed. But he was amused, and he said, he is a lesson to us all, is he not? Maybe I'm wrong here, but I was thinking that... He's a lesson because he has gone his entire life without being noticed, no matter how amazing he really is. That's a really good point. Mayhaps. I would also like to point out, Philip, that Krupp doesn't seem like he's being bothered by Thunder. Hmm. Also true. He's just eating and having a good old time. Is it because of the way he accesses his power, do you think? Dude. I mean, because like he doesn't Question open mark. Warrens like the other people do, right? At least it doesn't feel that way. You know, he dreams. That's how he gets his, you know, sight. Well, he definitely uses a Warren, though, because he's yeah. casting spells. I guess he's very subtle about it. The only time they ever mentioned him that I recall using his or trying to open his Warren was when they encountered uh, mm-hmm. the adjunct Lorne. That was the only time I've ever heard it, heard, heard it mentioned that he was accessing his Warren. Mm-hmm. But I, he does. He has to, right? I think it's one of those things. It's axiomatic, right? It's self-evident. Like, he's using a warren because he's casting magic. Sure, okay. Like, I don't think there's a way around it. Turban Orr has had a rough week, poor fella. He's been blocked in the council at every step. The proclamation of neutrality is dead. He hasn't been able to find his spy. And still, he desperately wants to be a servant of the Malazan Empire. So he acted. This very morning, he sent a messenger off to Pale, probably passing through that thunderstorm right now. Probably. (laughs) I didn't didn't think about that, yeah. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about the thunderstorm, because Turbinor just thinks it's a thunderstorm, and his messenger is almost certainly dead. 
or, or, or he saw it and it was like, I'm out, you know, and ran away. <laughs> well, I'm supposed to go over here. I'm going to go over here instead. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. This guy's taking, he's basically taking everything into his own hands, ignoring the council, ignoring protocol, and on his own initiative is reaching out to the Dujex army, essentially, the Malazan Empire. Well, he wants to be a high fist. As he's thinking about this, he's talking about, well, this might save me. And even more so, I might be able to be, you know, ranked higher in the Malazan. Might even take a step upwards. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a man who's planning every day into the future, right? You know, we're talking about Krupp not being able to plan in the future because he can't see past this moment. This is a guy who's like scheming, just like Simtal, always scheming, always looking ahead. But he doesn't recognize the threat as what it is. All the wizards do, certainly. But he does not. He just thinks it's a thunderstorm. He does notice something. <laughs> yes, he's he's giving him he's giving a lot of thought to his plotting and scheming when his eyes fall on a guard standing near the stairs. He doesn't recognize the guard. There's a familiarity to, it, to this person, though, uh, the size. But he doesn't notice him for being in the what were the Simtal estate or anything like that. He doesn't recognize the uniform. So it wasn't until the guy starts fidgeting with his his helmet he's his chin strap he's dealing with the chin strap down below and then it dawns on him for years he's seen this guy he has seen this guy when he's at what despot's barbican yep every time or goes to meet somebody secretly same guy to go mate to it's that same guy that's been there this whole time this is the spy he's been looking for all this time so he has plans for this guy immediately. Oh, he's yeah. like, whatever, Sim- Simtal can go to hell. I am going to kill this man right here and now at her party. She won't like it, but I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. He steps away from the wall and bam, runs into another man who does not apologize and then pours wine down the front of Turbinor's <laughs> jacket. And or is not happy with this. <laughs> Let me introduce you to Relic Nom, yeah. Mr. Orr. Okay, wait, he doesn't introduce himself, but yeah. <laughs> no, he does not introduce himself. He refuses to give his name. He says he's not worthy of knowing his name. He, he, he challenges him to a duel straight away. I don't know how you want to do this, but suffice it to say, uh, there's, you know, it's, this is when it happens, this right? Is this it. is a big deal. This is it. This is one of my cherished scenes of this book that um, I think about often, and it tickles me, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, from here on out, the chapter is quite, quite entertaining. Nevertheless, we begin here with the banter that Philip likes so incredibly much, where Ralic and Turbinor are talking to each other. Uh, you should have gotten out of my way. I, I get out of no man's way, you know, stuff like that. And then the challenge, and then Turbinor is like, Oh, look, friends, a dead man walking. You know, that kind of He's stuff. He's all talking he, it up. He says that yeah. uh, if I could kill you a thousand... What, what does he say? Why it's don't a, we look at the actual passage yes, and see if there's I, anything in there that we want to here, include? I got it right because here. this is not the duel. It's just the repartee. He says, he says right here, if I could kill you a thousand times, it would not be enough to satisfy me. I must settle for this once. And it's like, this is the spit that he's, fi- you know, the fire that he's spitting at, at Ralik Nam right now. Yeah, but how does Ralik respond? Done breaking wind. 
Yeah. <laughs> you done farting out of your mouth, dude. <laughs> yeah. So, like, further insulting him so he can make sure that this uh, duel is going to actually take place. Oh, I know. This is this is a man, Ralik Nam, taking advantage of the fact that Orr is a prideful creature. Right? He is manipulating Orr expertly. He knows that he's proud. He knows that all he has to do is insult this guy, and he can make him do what he wants him to do. He's goading him. And it was a simple yeah. bump. But yeah, you. S- oh no, it wasn't. Yeah, no, it wasn't. He got in his way on purpose. <laughs> well, I mean, it wasn't obviously on his end. It wasn't. But as far as uh, Turban Aura is well, concerned, you, you know this was planned, right? Well, yeah, I realize that. But what I'm saying is, Turban Aura, a guy who's at a party, people are drunk, people are having a good time, and this guy bumps into him and won't back down. And Turban Aura's got to take it to a duel level, you know. Yeah, of course. He's a duelist, man. He's like, that's his thing. Yeah, I know. But I mean, it's hard. Bumping. Oh, I mean, I guess the pouring of the wine down his shirt probably was enough, actually. He was going to let it go. He was like, <laughs> I, you know, yeah, well, gonna, he had something I, I to do. mark you. He wanted he, to go kill that other fool. So he had killing yeah. on his mind either way. Yeah, Ralik Nam is, doesn't ever mention anybody's name. Nobody knows who he is. I think he's, has he already taken his mask off? He took his mask off, and Turban Orr said, I don't even recognize you. Oh, well, he, I'll kill you anyway. He said, yeah. He's like, what's your name? And he's like, you were not fit to hear it. <laughs> I just like, yeah. oh, that's so good. I don't know, man. This whole, I just love almost every single paragraph or sentence in here I loved. It was a real good section. Um, the end of it, however, they have to choose seconds, as is traditional, so Turbinor politically chooses his greatest enemy in the council, Estrasian Daarl, to be his second. The man accepts, and that ends the second. Yeah, we don't know who uh, Ralik Nam is going to choose as of yet. Well, right. well, the the only significant other significant part here is that even in this moment right now, Turbinor is trying to be political because Estrasian Daarl and Urban Orr are political enemies, and so to get his enemy political enemy to accepting his second it's like he's getting power over him or that he supports him it's another symbolic gesture because he's always a schemer but you also um are introduced to a barguest war maiden in minimum guard which is chalice his daughter yeah right so she's she's identified in this section as being mm, immodest present at the party present and immodest flaunting her fine physique i'm sure crocus will be happy well, that's what Philip noticed. <laughs> I have a one-track mind. Yeah. Lady Simtal and Marilio have slipped off together, back up to her bedchambers. She's locked the door, and they're making serious eyes at each other. So that was what Marilio was all meant to do. He's this. Uh uh-uh. uh. What happened to La- what happened to Lady Orr? I don't know. I mean, how many... He was supposed to be having sex with Lady Or. She got sick. At this party. She got oh, sick. But she... I know she got sick, but how the hell did they arrange that? Oh, did they get her... I thought that was Turpin Or got his own wife sick so that she wouldn't come. I have no idea what happened. I just know that this was not part of the plan as it was revealed to us. Okay. Right. They got the tickets off of Lady Or long time ago, oh, but... but the arrangement was... Marilia would have to pleasure her. That's right. Well, that wasn't what he did to get the tickets? Yes, it is. Yeah. 
Oh, but he was gonna have to still no, no, no. reciprocate at tonight. the party. Oh, that's at the right. party. It was he was gonna pay her back here. Huh. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about and, that. Yeah. So did they get her sick, sick so that they could do the simtol bit? How the? I mean, how? How? I, well, I, I like. Was, I like how Marilio's like the the suave dude that's there to. Uh, that's he's the Fabio. He's there to to woo all the women. You know what I mean? And uh, if like like oh or or face from the A team or something like yes, that. Yes. He's the if ever it must be done. He's the man who will do it. <laughs> oh, Marilio has gotten into some messes in the past. I bet. <laughs> and I'm sure he's gotten out of a few as well. Yeah. Oh my god, I didn't I didn't put that together. You're right. Yeah, he was supposed to hook up with her, uh, but now she's now he's hooking up with Lady Simtal. And apparently Which is better. It's better. Well, it That's, gets her out of the way so that yeah. she won't be uh, there to stop the fight. Yeah, that exactly. we know she will. Exactly. That, it needed to happen this way, but it seems it seemed weird to me and, and whatever. No, that's all part of the plan, I'm sure. Wow. Well, Lady Simtal, while making eyes at Marilio, notices that it's really quiet. And she's like, why is it so quiet? And Marilio's like, they've probably just retired to the terrace. And she's like, I must check. And he's like, no, you aren't. And he pulls her to him and he reveals his secret weapon. <laughs> his unoiled dagger. Did you guys, I mean, you guys saw that happen, y- right? Yes. Like she, she gasps and is like, oh my God, what are we doing with clothes on? <laughs> well, that's when, yeah. So he pulls her really close to him is what you're saying. And then in order for his body to touch her sure. body, she, she obviously is which sig- Dude, he must be super well hung. <laughs> Packing, baby. <laughs> Read that sentence again and tell me that that dude does not have the biggest ding dong you've ever heard of. Well, we don't actually see it described. I mean, it's not unsheathed, it's just unveiled, right? Her breathing did oh, change. You're just right. Just so you know, I was I focused on the scantily clad Charlie's daughter, and you're focusing on it. Really? <laughs> Read the sentence. You read it to me, sexy. I don't know where it is. Oh, damn you. I don't have the page. Uh, Here I will. I go from memory when we do yeah, these yeah. things. She hesitated, then made the mistake of letting her him press his body against hers. Lady Simtel's eyes widened in near alarm. Her breathing changed. So she gasped. What are we still doing dressed? Near alarm. She... <laughs> Near alarm. She's like, I don't know about this. It's funny that near alarm says, let's go farther. <laughs> when I'm right. when I'm alarmed at something, I really think twice about going forward. <laughs> well, what can I say? She, she likes a challenge. Yeah, she does. <laughs> Baruch is almost ready to volunteer as Ralik's second because he's frustrated that this is taking so long. Despite what it would reveal about his relationship with Ralik, and fortunately, Rake steps forward, also irritated, says, I'm tired of you talking, Mr. Turban Orr. Let's get this done. I will be his second. Yeah, he doesn't like him at all. Well, but Turban Orr suspects something. He said, ah, the two strangers know each other. And Rake just said, we've never met. I find myself instinctively sharing his distaste for your endless talk. So the duelists step outside, followed by the throng. Oh yeah, everybody's and there. And this is when, yep, this is when Baruch notices that Mammoth has arrived, and he is wearing a ghastly mask in the visage of 
a jagut. Mm. These guys are nuts about their masks. I mean, seriously, there's so there's there's a lot of symbolism in there that is just appropriate or alarming, however you want to interpret it. So Baruch asks after Crocus, any word from your nephew? And Mammoth says, no, it's disturbing me greatly. He hopes that uh, Opon's luck will hold true for Crocus right now. I do too. <laughs> Actually, I don't care. Well, you know. I I don't personally care, really. I I think um, Crocus is on the side of angels right now, for sure. He's wanted for murder. You know, he's trying to clear his name. This kid's, uh, he's in in deep. And a lot of the book with Marilio and the other agents of the eel were talking about how they wanted to save Crocus from all of this mess. And here he is, uh, converging with everybody else. Just one of the boys. Just one of the boys. <laughs> not that bright. No, he's not bright at all. Thanks. Thankfully, he has Absalar with him. <laughs> Brains for both of them, right? All right, so the party goers have erupted onto the terrorist, an unexpected surprise for the bridge burners who are acting as guards. And it's it's immediate that Fiddler is like, that is the Lord of Moonspawn. <laughs> And, like, cover's blown. We got to go. And Whiskey Jack's like, take it easy. Take it easy. It's not over yet. Well, Fiddler's a little excited that there's going to be a duel going on. He's like... Well, there is definitely going to be a duel. (laughs) He comes in and he's like, they're going to (laughs) fight. Quick Ben tells Whiskey Jack that he's not going to be much help. It's just a reminder that he can't access his Warren. And if everything goes bad, the decision is going to be to use their extra munitions to burn this place to the ground in a night that they will remember. But right now, their cover's not blown. So just hold tight and let's see how this plays out kind of a thing. And that is when a man dressed as a thief slips past Whiskey Jack and into the party from the garden. And he's like, I thought we cleared that garden. <laughs> so Crocus has some, uh, he has some talent. He has some talent, but no imagination, hmm. right? He he's he's just wearing his his thieving clothes, which is like his clothes, and is slipping in, and it happens to be a disguise. Well, I mean, all he really wants to do is come in and confront Chalice, right? It is, and he's abandoned Absalar. He's left her at the back wall, and he's like, I've got this, or whatever. I don't know. Just, and, but she can see in the dark, so obviously she can see everything that's going now on. Now, he does tell her, uh, as he leaves her, that if anything goes bad, that she should go back to the Phoenix Inn and meet up with uh, Mamet, my Uncle Mamet. He'll know what to do. You know, that type of yep. stuff. Well, he, he did say Phoenix Inn and Misa Narilta sure. and his friends. Mm-hmm. So, like, she, she would get help if she needed it, if things go wrong. But ultimately, Crocus looking out for somebody, you know, is like a cat taking care of a fish. All right. It does not take Crocus long to locate Chalice, but he is so preoccupied with the task that he, only now does he realize there is going to be a duel. Yeah, he's like leaning over and he's like kind of watching the proceedings and he's like standing next to a guard. Does he ask who it is? It's Turban Orr? Yes. Yeah, that's what it is. He's he all, who's the, the guy down there? And uh, the guard says Turban Orr. And he's like, oh, well, Ralek's going to take him out easy, you know, basically. And then the guard's <laughs> yeah. like, you know this guy? And and the whole time the guy's like got a real strangeness to him. Like he's talking in a clipped way. He's like holding himself weird. His face is sweaty. And then Krupp walks up, hands the guard a scroll, 
and kind of steers Crocus away. Krupp tells the guard that there's an admirer of his and that this note was sent to him from that person. And Crocus is like, oh, these guards have all the luck. They get all the ladies liking them and all this other stuff. Because, again, Crocus, that's the only thing you could really think about. And it's not. It's uh, That's the Circle Breaker. That is Circle Breaker. And that's the agent of the eel. And he has a yeah. note from, from Krupp. Let's talk about the note. Yeah, you go for it, dude. I don't have a lot to say about that note other than... Well, you're a fan of Circle Breaker, right? It basically made me cry. You... I mean, I was so happy. This man, he shouldered the same burden that Krupp and Baruch have shouldered. And he thought himself a dead man walking. He doesn't have magic. He doesn't have all these friends and like a party of, you know, characters that are there to help him out. He's all alone. He's isolated. He's been living like this for a long time. Years at least. I mean, he has a room that has like nothing in it, right? Yes. Yes. This guy has really sacrificed for the city. This is his reward. He was also doing it for no recompense. He didn't do right. this for money. He didn't do it for any of those reasons. He was an enemy of tyranny. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, somebody appreciates him to the point where he's like, you will retire tonight. There is a boat waiting for you. You are now a titled lord in this city. Not, and no, I, you're going to lead a new life. Not this city, a different city, Devran yeah. or something. Wherever that boat's going to, yes. Right, wherever the boat's going. And uh, it also says that everybody, don't worry about it, everybody that works on this boat is an agent of the eel. Yeah. Everybody that where you're going is an agent of the eel, basically. Yep. It sounds... Enjoy. It sounds like a good version of the prisoner, you know? Where he like quits yeah, sure. and then he gets stuck on the island and he has to figure out. Well, instead of being stuck on the island, you're welcomed onto this island. <laughs> Do you guys remember when yeah. Brooke asked Krupp? He's like, what do we know about the eel? And he went on this. And you know Krupp exaggerates about himself all the time? And he's like, oh, his agents are are limitless and, you know, and like beyond count. And um, his agents are ever Whatever he said, uh, I, I always took it to be an exaggeration, but then you get here and you're like, wow, he really does have like, agents everywhere. Dude, Krupp is a baller. <laughs> he's got a talent. Apparently. He can access Warrens. He, uh, he's got agents all over doing his bidding. He's just a big cow. Big fair, fat cow, though. To be fair, if you were able to meditate for one hour and you could find the path that led to a guaranteed success, you also would be very successful. Right? You know the thing of you know, that's what meditation is supposed to be all about. Actually, real no, real me- no, it's not real meditation. No, no, it's not is about no clarity. And when you have not a seeing the future, mind, buddy. Pardon me. Not seeing the future. Maybe not seeing... Obviously, I'm not talking about really seeing the future, but when you have a muddled mind and it's clear, the idea of meditation is that you clear that. And then you come back and you're focused on what you need to do. And Krupp is a magic version of that. At least that's how I, a layman, figure... Divination is definitely included in his talent. Right. Just to make a connection, like previously when they are talking about the coin bearer and... Krupp was mentioning that usually when gods, when they're done using a mortal for whatever tool they're they're using it for, that tool will usually be destroyed or killed. And now he's doing the absolute opposite. Well, as I'm reading this, I'm wondering... If that boat's going to sink. Is this boat sinking? Is he going to this pier and he's just going to get thrown into the the ocean? Not a chance. Uh, 
<laughs> Not a chance. Because that would be something that could... Uh, you could see happening in a different story. Yeah, but it's not this know, story, sure, thank goodness. You know? Corrupt's a good guy. Yeah, you assume they're not going to knife him and put a rock in his belly and dump him into the bay, right? Well, the last thing that the letter said is the circle is mended. Turbinor is being a pompous ass. Comments from the seconds are elicited and um, Estrasian de Arl says that he doesn't care if Turbinor lives or dies and no vengeance will be coming anybody's way if Ralic should win. Yeah, and Bar- Baruch is named the judge of this whole thing also. Which again, Turbinor is like, "Oh, that's another feather on my cap if Baruch, a guy who's not friendly with me, should have to raise my hand in victory." Mm. And Baruch drops the handkerchief. This fight is not much of a fight, right? Well, to spoil everything, Anamanda Rake says that it was not a very even match. <laughs> Turban Orr has like a dueling. He lunges before that thing has even hit the ground, before the handkerchief has even hit the ground. Right. Yeah, he's got the dueling gloves. He's got the dueling rapier. He's got, um, I don't know if he has a dagger as well. I don't remember. Well, remember, we were actually worried about Ralik. I really was worried about Ralik, whether he'd even have yeah. the strength or the capability to see this through. And Marilio thought that he would have to step up and do it. And they had all these plans, but Ralik said, no, I can man up. I can do this. And the entire fight is over in like 1.5 seconds. It was so fast. It was so fast and ladies and gentlemen Ralic well, wins Ra- just <laughs> Ralic doesn't even show that he has any blades under it's his like, what's this where's your where's your sword and he's like i'm ready yeah. it didn't last long uh, the duel is over turbinor has been stabbed in the chest and in the neck i believe and yeah. astrasian darl approaches baruch and says very politically Obviously, um, I know this was an assassination, <laughs> uh, but I'm gonna. I'm not gonna look. I'm, I'm gonna look the other way. That's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Well, as Mr. I, Mr. Councilman, essentially, Ralik just did him a favor, right? Oh yeah, big time. I know. I know. This was clearly an assassination, but yes. As it turns yeah. out, I approve. <laughs> right. He can't say that, thank goodness. But you know, he did it very. He did it very cleverly, and and this is when Rake comments that it was a very uneven match. And it's about now when the witch Derudin arrives, seeking Baruch's attention. I remember reading about her in the back of the book. It just says that she's a witch of the Torud Cabal. And I was like, Mm. when is she going to get introduced? Well, here she is. And she's smoking from a water pipe. And she has a servant, like, kind of following around behind her, holding the water pipe on a pillow. (laughs) And she's puffing away on her pipe. And she says, well, we have a lot of faith in you, Anamander Rake. It's nice to meet you and have you and all these things. But, boy, I'm a little nervous. Yes? (laughs) Uh, They're all nervous because the storm is approaching. Oh, that's what he said. Yeah, he says, don't. He's like, don't worry. He's like, if it's necessary, I'll attend to the matter personally. Um, he also says that he has suspicions uh, his attention is needed here and not there right now. That something very important is happening right here. Um, and he, he won't speak of it because it's too sensitive. And Baruch is dragged off by Derudin. It's good to meet you, witch. I think is what he says when he parts ways with her, which is kind of awesome. I mean, it wasn't just a hello. Like, when the witch comes up, Drood, and I, I think it was more... She doesn't seem like the person that would, like, placate or be subservient to, but it, I think she was very clear that she did not want to be his enemy, and she supported him. The message that I got was that she's, you know, trusting in Andamanda Rake, and probably also very capable in her own right, you know? Like, she didn't seem perturbed. Baruch is the one that's perturbed, but, you know... 
Maybe he has more on his shoulders than Derridan does. That's a guess. Marilio is dressing, and the Lady Simtal is peering through the shutters at the guests below. She is unaware of the duel having happened. And then she returns her attention to Marilio and moves back to the bed when the door is kicked open, and here comes Ralik Nam. But she gets, I mean, she doesn't scream, but she says, look, I could scream, and there could be guards all over here. And he's like, you won't. They've, they've already been bought off. Yes, which is what she did. Hence, the lesson should not be lost I, on her. When did she do that, though? When she was betraying Cole. Oh, okay. Gotcha. She mentions that Turban Aura is going to hunt these guys down. That's a laugh. For what they're doing. No, no, no. She does not think Marilio is involved. Ralek says to Marilio when he enters, get dressed. I see what you're saying. As in, you know, deflecting suspicion off of Marilio. He's bought off the guards. There are none that will come if she were to call. But he lets her know that the contract on Cole has been canceled. And Turban Orr is dead. I was very pleased for Turban Orr to die. I hated him from the minute I met him. And I think it was very fitting that he died the way that he did, embarrassed in front of all of those people. You know he shit his pants. <laughs> right? Yeah, he probably he did. did. <laughs> he, he loosened his bowels and he um, wet his breeches, as it were. Nevertheless, Marilio is watching Lady Simtal because Ralik is gone. Ralik spun and left. And he watches her just kind of shrivel up like the woman that she was just is diminished. She has no more protectors. She can see it. Her position is lost. Cole will be returned to this estate immediately. Like, it's over for her. So Marilio tosses his dagger on the bed and walks out. Well, it was a ceremonial dagger, which I took to mean it... It wasn't sharp or... it. No, that's what we do with ceremonial daggers. He's obviously planning for her to kill herself with it. Well, he did. He said he's like, he like when he left, he's like, he knew that he would be the last person to see her alive. Yeah. And it's probably with that dagger, is my I, guess. So it's probably not dull. I think that was the hint. But yeah, it was a little... There's a paradox there I didn't get. Ceremonial dagger, she's supposed to kill herself. Would you say that a ritual dagger would be a ceremonial dagger? Yes. And would a ritual dagger be used to cut the hearts out of, you know, Aztec victims? I suppose so, yes. Well, there you go. Yeah, like a bloodletting ceremony or something like that. Sure. So on his way out, Marilio, is he doubting that this was the thing to do? He says he's not cut out for this. And at the very end... He says that he's now lost. It's a question. Or am I it's lost? It's a question. Well, yeah. and and look who he's look who's asking. Maori. Maori, yeah. It's the god of beggars. So now that the plan after all this time has actually happened, does he now question whether or not it was the right thing to do or it's just like there was so much that he had to put into it to make it happen? Maybe it's because he screwed her just a few minutes ago. Remember what Perrin was talking about when it came to vengeance? Mm -hmm. Do you? No. I remember, Um, but I don't mm -hmm. remember. It's like, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but it's not a healthy state of affairs. You focus on this thing, and he's achieved his goal, and he never looked past this moment. Like, they were just aiming at this goal, which was to have their revenge for Cole and to reinstate him. And now that he's there, like he's essentially just committed murder. Well, they do- and Marilio's not a murderer. Well, they had told him, told each other that it was justice, but I there, and it right. was, but also there was a component of revenge. And now that he's done it, 
he feels soiled. His soul feels dirty. I think so, and yeah. And I think... Definitely. I think it's interesting because Ralic feels like he has reclaimed his humanity, but Morelio feels that he lost his. Well, and it might also just be uh, you build something up for so long. Yeah. And when it is finally over, what do you, do now? What do you have yeah. left? So, you know, maybe he doesn't have a conscience of faith necessarily. Conscience. Um, not a conscience of faith. A crisis um, of conscience? Maybe it's not that he is questioning his morality so much. It's just that he doesn't have future plans. You know, a lot of this chapter is mm. people looking, people that are looking forward, looking yeah. ahead, they're dying. <laughs> people that don't know what's going on, uh, well, at least they're alive at the end of this part. All right. I like the suggestion <laughs> that maybe he's now lost because his dire- the thing that was directing him is absent. Right, and now mm-hmm. he's going to have to stand on his own two feet and decide his future for himself. And um, but that is where we're left um, with Simtal certainly about to commit suicide. Turbinor is dead. Cole is alive. Everything's looking up for everybody except the bad guys. Except that race is on. Yeah, his race way. is on the way. <laughs> Crocus has been biding his time and patiently getting into position. He tosses a pebble into the fountain to get Chalice's attention, and he succeeds. And she's like, oh. And with one backwards glance, she runs to him, and she says, oh, Gorlas, where have you been all night? And Crocus graduates to kidnapping. (laughs) (laughs) Firstly, she's very scantily clad, right? Yeah. And she's been waiting all night for some other dude. Yeah. And Crocus has been, like, for whatever reason, he wants to confront her. And then he just, like... Yeah, well, she doesn't recognize him. And she thinks he's somebody... He, she thinks he's somebody else. Somebody that she wants to see. Exactly. Right. This girl... Not right. him. Look, she's such a hussy. I'm sorry. She is? I don't know. It doesn't matter if she's a hussy or not. This isn't about Fine. her. This, this is about, about Crocus. Crocus. And I don't... He Crocus makes... is a kidnapper. What's that? <sighs> Very mature, guys. Was that a Very plan? mature. Yeah, I've never said he's mature. Never. Was, was this a whim? Mature. I mean, was never. that a whim? Was it the plan? I mean, what's going on here? I don't know what the plan is, but it's not a good one. Well, it's not it the is. plan because he thinks to himself at the end, now what? Yeah, now he's got to get rid of her body. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a he... second. Now you're taking Wait, it to he... murder. <laughs> Dude, He's he's wanted for murder. And now he just kidnapped the daughter. You think that he's going to be able to let her go? I guess technically that's an improvement. <laughs> yeah, it's an improvement. And, you know, when she shows up alive. I guarantee you they're going to want to kill him. He's going to have to leave town. That's all there is to it. Like, he's done. He's Come done on, in Darugistan. You don't think his, you don't think Mamet can paper the way so that he can uh, get past all this? Hey, no. you know, I think you got it all right. He just wants no. to talk to her. Seriously. He I just wants to talk to her. I, I don't agree. care. He just kidnapped her. She doesn't know that she's being kidnapped right now, so it's okay. She's biting his hand. Oh, is she? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, she does struggle against well, him. Well, yeah. he's got a mask on, and she thinks he's goreless, so at this point he can still get away. Circle Breaker is just inside the estate's main chamber. There's a flurry of activity going on around Turbinor's body. There's no sign of the captain of the guard. There's no sign of Simtal. 
happy moments for me. Happy moments. <laughs> happy moments as Circle Breaker's getting away. He walks to the front door, and he he hears this uh, little fat man snoring in an antique chair, in a cherub mask, with, like, sugary stuff all over <laughs> his face. And he thinks about it, and then he walks out the door, smiling for the first time maybe ever. I don't know. Well, the guy was snoring, and... Do you- uh, you know, it's corrupt, right? But do you think he was faking it or was he really sleeping? I don't know, man. I thought about the same thing. It's possible he was faking it. It's also possible that he was dreaming. Ah. So performing divination. Sure. Because now the night's over. Maybe he can see. I don't know. But, you know, I, I wrote down in my notes that he was in a food coma. Oh, yeah, right? <laughs> because he's he's absolutely eaten so many pastries and savories yeah. and et cetera. But it's over for Circle Breaker, ladies he's, and gentlemen. It's he's over. Done his part. He's walking away. His, his mortal enemy is dead. He has done his job. I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy for him. But that ends the chapter. That ends the fate. Right? No, fate. no. Nah. Technically, the chat the chapter doesn't end the fate, but that's the right. Lady Simtal's fate is definitely over. Oh, two different type of fates. Yes. Yeah. Well, she's yeah. over. Yeah. Just to recap, she's dead or dying, or but uh, implied that she was going to kill herself. Turban Or is dead. What Yay. else? Circle Breaker is relieved of duty. Yay! Uh, there's so much going on, right? Yeah. And the bridge burners didn't have to blow everything up. You that's know? right. And Amanda Rake is still there at the party, along with all those wizards, and the Finnist was obviously buried in the back garden. But Sari's back there, don't forget. Oh, that's right. And also, Kalam had told Skurve mm-hmm. that if the, uh, the Master of Assassins was worth his or her salt, they would be at the back gate to accept the contract tonight. Wow. And that's where Kalam and Perrin are also. Well, and Crocus and Chalice. Crocus is in the party. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They they oh retreated gosh. into the garden. So that's kind of where we're left. Now let's talk about masks, yes? Yeah, okay, great, yeah. Okay, so as we might have just mentioned for the first time, Krupp is wearing a cherub's mask. In the very beginning, he had said that maybe Baruch alone would recognize the mask for you know its, its meaning and etc. And it's a cherub and it's Krupp. What do you guys think that means? I didn't think anything of it other than... I, I don't know. It's irony. He thinks that Baruch will recognize the irony. I didn't figure it out. You tell but me. I think he um, is aware that Baruch is on to him. And I think a cherub is like this kind of stereotypical, innocent, happy figure. And so the irony there is that he is far from innocent. He's far from a child. <laughs> he, you know, he's very, very well connected mm-hmm. is the eel. Um, and obviously Marilio recognized it and saw it is appropriate for Krupp as well. But let's talk about the other ones too. Um, Turbinor was wearing a hawk's mask. I think that's pretty appropriate for Turbinor. Um, Lady Simtal was in a panther's mask. Yeah, he, she had a black panther mask and he said, how appropriate. And she said, of course it is. And she was testy about it. Was there something else there that was implied? Or is it just she considers herself a predator, a cat? I think so, yeah. Remember, she has contempt for Turbinor. Well, he wore a hawk's mask, also a predator. Yes, and a far-sighted one at that. Oh, right. I didn't get that. Yeah, sure. And she's more like an ambush predator. 
right? Mm. Oh, right. Oh, my gosh. A lot of these masks are so appropriate. I never even thought about Uh, it. Ah, that's why we're talking about it now at the end, because they're all really appropriate. Crocus is wearing a thief's mask, which is very true. What are the other masks? Well, there's the uh, Trake, the Tiger of Summer. Yeah. I forget who's wearing that, but. Well, I don't really know the significance of that one other than the Tiger of Summer. Phil was talking about all the different seasons combining or the circle being joined, so to speak. Yeah, full circle with all the seasons. But I think it was more literal that he was there to hunt. Battle. He was there to do battle. He was there to do battle and he was hunting and he was hunting Mm. Turban or to do battle. So I think that was very appropriate for for him. Okay. Marilio. He was a peacock, right? Feather decked peacock mask. (laughs) We've talked about Marilio. He is a dandy. Like his job is to look good and to strut around. And that's a peacock. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there's a name for that, and I can't remember what it is. It's called peacocking. peacocking. <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Um, um, who else? There's a couple more. We got Baruch and Amanda Rake. Baruch wore a half mask, which is just, it's modest. It was simple, and it was... It wasn't just a half mask. It was a half shield. Oh, as in... Think about Baruch does. So he, Baruch is he, a protector of the city. Well, that's right. So essentially, he's not two-faced, but he is has a dual personality. Hmm. Baruch? Yes. He's the Why? he's the alchemist and he's the leader of the Tord Kamal, right? So Yeah, but what does that have to do with his mask? Because there's a there's because it's only a half shield. He has a secret identity that is half of his existence. Okay, I'll go with that. And the other half is a shield, yeah. so he's protecting the city well, with that. Yeah, the, one half is the shield half and the other half is his overt half. The overt half is the alchemist. And Anamander Rake? Dragon. I'm going to take that one as literal as Crocus's. Yeah. Well, I think, well, because always in the deck of, not the deck of many things, the, the dragon deck. <laughs> deck of dragons. Yes. He has a draconic um, symbolism that covers him with like. He has scales on the lower half of his body. Stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now he's wearing a black dragon mask. Hmm. And the preamble says dragons have come among us, and it's referring to Anamander Rake. And there are five black dragons, and we've only seen four so far. And the list goes on, right? I think it's pretty safe. Like, if we're suspicious that he might be soul taken a dragon, I think that's a very reasonable assumption at this point. Who else had a mask? I can't remember. There's one more, at least one more. Latecomer to the party. Mammoth. Oh, Mammoth. Oh, was wearing, right. Uh, God, what was, he was wearing a Jaghut mask. He was, and he said that he thought it was an accurate representation, but the tusks might be a little short. Right. <laughs> well, he'll find out soon. <sighs> yeah, because a, a Jaghut tyrant is on his way to the city. Yeah, and I forget who it was that said it, but they were like... It was, su- it was Baruch. Not days. Hours. Hours. Exactly. So where we were like, oh, I thought he was going to show up for the fate. He still has time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not over. <laughs> what a chapter. All right, guys. <clears throat> well, That was a good one. It was. This was one of my favorites. I really enjoyed it. And just to elaborate on something about Erickson I really find appealing is the way he does combat. It's... It's quick, it's brutal, it's efficient, and usually, like most combats happen, like they're over very, very quickly. They don't 
take very long. Like if you look at the writings of like R.A. Salvatore and the Dark Elf, like like it, it, these elaborate, ridiculous battle scenes that go on forever and ever, like perfectly matched for hours and hours and hours. That's absolutely ridiculous. Even though I love those books as a kid, but completely unrealistic. It's something I appreciate. I think it's very realistic. And there's some there's some other examples too, like when Relic fought Ocelot. I mean, that happened fast. This element of realism where, realistically speaking, when you get two incredibly competent killers, I mean, the first person that gets an advantage, I mean, it's, it's over, right? Mm-hmm. Usually. I like it. It was very appealing. It was very well done. And it's just more candy for, to, for, for my type of uh, reading. I really like how all the um, stuff is interweaving. I mean, obviously, that's what a convergence is all about in a, in a fantasy novel, especially. But there are so many little things that have been left throughout the entirety of the book that we're even now saying we're going to have to reread it to see if those things are actually happening. So um, right. that's pretty. That's a pretty special thing. So I think I'm not. Rereading I'm not rereading it for any. Not for a no. long time. <laughs> ten years. Ten years at a minimum. You mean after we're done with the tenth book? Well, so just a brief mention here that every single person here we've already met before, with the exception of Lady Darl, which is just briefly mentioned, but the other, the uh, witch, the witch also, yeah. that was the first time we've ever encountered a named character. Darudin. Darudin, yeah. And I don't know if she's important, but it's just weird to bring her in late game. Maybe it's flavor, maybe it's something else, but it's interesting to finally meet somebody new, and you really don't have any idea what who she is or what she can do, other than she's apparently a powerful witch. Did you notice how distinct her language was? No, but it was it was it was odd. It was different. Yeah, she uh, she said yes as a question after every sentence she spoke. Basically, yes, like she had a very unique way of speaking that really set her apart. That's interesting. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, it, yes. Yes. Why it is? Yes. Uh, I think maybe you're right. But you're right. Uh, she was clearly—I would say not normal, but she was clearly. Well, she might have been high. Well, that's a, she that's was smoking thing. a lot. That's for sure. Out of a water pipe. I don't know what they smoke there. That woman that sits on the porch. She doesn't smoke tobacco. She smoked some other leaf. Wacky tobacco. No, it was. It had a name. Oh, it did. But it wasn't. Yeah. I don't know what they smoke in the desert. It's a dry leaf. Wherever they are. Camel dung. Puff, puff, give. Yeah, no thanks. All right, so that was chapter 21. Um, We have three to go. Something like that. I'm excited. Well, uh, I think that calls it, guys. That does it for this episode. Thank you for joining us. We will see you guys in two weeks' time, either on the 9th or the 23rd. I don't remember. Yeah, thanks for uh, joining us, everybody. Uh, Let us know in the comments down below what you think about everything. Appreciate it. Fun chapter. Thank you, everyone. Good night.